Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. If you follow business, particularly in the world of startups in Silicon Valley, you know that part of the lure of every company is its founding story or myth. How the founders came together, overcame objections, and persevered to build their insanely great product. Over time, the myth takes on a life of its own, and it often comes to define both the company and its products. In a similar way, it's true of nation states, including the U.S. We were a nation forged from disparate regions, the Northeast, the South, the West, the Midwest, each with different cultures, different philosophies, and different demographics. And yet we have continued to buy into the myth of one nation, one United States, the proverbial nationalistic shining city on a hill. It seems, though, that every few decades the patina wears off the myth, and those real differences come to the surface as we struggle to hold it together. We are living through that kind of time today as our differences, our individuality, and the core of who we really are bubble up and allow our tribal natures to overtake our unifying civic virtues. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Colin Woodard. Colin Woodard's an award-winning author and journalist. He's currently the state and national affairs writer for the Portland Press-Herald. He was a 2016 Pulitzer Prize finalist and received a George Polk Award for his investigative reporting. Several years ago, he was named one of the best state capital reporters in America, and it is my pleasure to welcome Colin Woodard back to this program to talk about his new work, Union, the struggle to forge the story of United States nationhood. Colin, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for having me again. It's a great pleasure. Talk first about the idea that all of the disparate elements of the U.S. and who first sort of came up with the notion that it was going to take some unifying myth in order to pull this together as a country. Right. Well, in one of my previous books, American Nations, I argue that there'd never been one America, but rather several Americas. In other words, that the different colonial clusters, the rival colonial projects that formed on the eastern and southern rims of what's now the United States, um, had completely different ethnographic and religious and cultural and political characteristics, and that those characteristics remained lasting and spread with the settlers into mutually exclusive settlement zones, tiers of the country where each of those you know, colonies moved westward. And by the time of the revolution, what drew these different colonial projects together, uh, colonies that had been, you know, enemies as often as they had been friends and certainly rivals, was a shared threat by British colonial policy in the 1770s that led to the the, the War of Independence. And uh, in <laughs> that, that war, you know, lo and behold, they beat the British and they found themselves in an alliance and also with a sort of you know, country or something called the United States that they all belonged to. And nobody was quite sure what that meant. Uh, you know, if you'd ask somebody in the early republic what country they were from, they they would have said, I'm a Massachusettsian or I'm a South Carolinian. Nobody really knew what the United States was or thought of being a United Statesian. You know, was it a, was it a loose alliance? Was it a, some kind of a confederation like the European Union today of, of sovereign states? Or was it supposed to be a, 
a unitary nation like the ones that were now that were then forming in Europe. Nobody knew the answers. And they, they were able to get by for a time on the heroism of the shared struggle and victory in the War of Independence. But by the 1830s, that generation had died off and left the scene. And suddenly the country was left with this real national security problem of there wasn't a good answer for why it existed, what its purpose was, what its story would be. And somebody needed to come up with one or everyone feared it would all fall apart, much as the founding fathers had been worried it might fall apart back when they were, you know, working to cobble it together in the 1770s and 1780s. And talk about the way we could look to the founders to try and find, even though they were unsatisfactory as the country continued to grow, look to the founders to try and find the answers to this. Well, the people in the 1830s who tried to come up with an answer, a United States story rather than a story of its component states or colonies or regions, um, looked back to the founders. And, and the key figure in it who created the first draft of our story, a historian named George Bancroft, who would rise to be a major statesman and the most prominent historian of the 19th century in the United States, he looked to the Declaration of Independence, to our founding document that first said we're going to be independent and we're going to be a bunch of, you know, United States doing that. And the preamble to that document contained its statement of, of, of initial purpose. You know, this declaration that, you know, all humans are created equal and that they have certain unalienable rights, including the pursuit of happiness and liberty, and that they should live in self-government. Um, and those ideals he argued in his book, were what held us together. We may not share a past, but we share a future. That Americans are anybody, almost in theory, universally, who has fealty to those ideas, and that that's what holds us together and gives us purpose. And he argued, I mean, he, he um, his, uh, did his arguments through speeches and a 10-volume history that took him much of his life to write, a blockbuster history that, that everyone had to read and which shaped the way people thought about and started speaking about the country. And it argued that um, God had chosen the Americans for this purpose, that even in our prehistory, our, our disparate colonial cultures were all really part of a a previously unseen plan to further human freedom and that Americans were destined and tasked to do this and to spread across the continent and to, uh, and to be a beacon of you know, light and freedom to the world universally. And you can see the echoes of that in national story, but that's where it came from and it drew from particular elements of the founding gener generations, um, you know, um, arguments and uh, and assertions. And you can really see where that whole idea of American exceptionalism as a way to kind of bind the country together had within it the seeds of its own problems in so many respects. All kinds of problems. I mean, just taking that civic national vision by itself and not, not looking at its rival, I mean, there's all sorts of you know, hubris in that if you believe, especially if you believe you're tasked by God for great things, that can lead to a arrogance and overreach and uh, an overconfidence and a failure to see past your own blinders and, you know, also leads to the, you know, conquest of a continent with all the terrible things that happened in the process. But um, in it, at some level, there was this idea of a universal mission of a of a of a task and a quest for freedom that could theoretically involve everybody. And that was a, you know, for those time periods, a pretty, um, 
you know, um, unusual um, statement of national purpose. To what extent was westward expansion also a part of that idea? Well, it was... uh, it was encoded within it. I mean, this was written in the 1830s when westward expansion was just getting going. The Erie Canal had been completed recently, which effectively opened up the Great Lakes states. Um, but Bancroft was—he was from New England. He was the son of a, you know, of a congregational preacher, descendants of the early Puritans. He'd gone to Phillips Exeter Academy and to Harvard, and he hadn't traveled much in the United States out of New England in the areas that New Englanders had settled. He'd spent uh, a lot of his, as a young man, he'd gone to, been sent to graduate school in Germany and had traveled all over Europe and met, you know, Lafayette and Lord Byron and all kinds of major historical figures. But his understanding of the United States was still very greater New England focused. So he imagined that this experience that that um, on the northern part of the frontier, the northern tier of the United States, as it was making a conquest of the West, was universally shared. And he had a very idealistic vision of what was happening on the frontier, um, you know, also not you know, paying any attention or giving any, um, any rights to the Native Americans and the like, like many people of his age. But he had this, um, this idea that what was happening on the northern frontier was also what was happening on the Appalachian frontier and on the southern frontier, which was um, not, in fact, the case. So he had a, a, a regionally distorted view of events. And the other character that you talk about, William Gilmore Simmons, also had a very regional and distorted view. His was certainly a more southern view. Talk about that. Massively. So he was from William Gilmore Sims, also sort of forgotten today, but he was the leading man of letters of the antebellum South and the Confederacy. And he argued explicitly, as did his intellectual allies, that Jefferson was wrong, that the preamble to the Declaration of Independence was false, and it was clear that humans were not created equal. In fact, that only certain races, which at the time you know, conflated race and ethnography. Only certain races were capable of Republican self-government and others needed tutelage or were better off in servitude. And that the race that um, had achieved self-government was the allegedly superior Anglo-Saxon race. And that the United States was really a confederation of sovereign organic nations like South Carolina and Massachusetts that shared this great Anglo-Saxon heritage and that other people from other backgrounds and certainly races um, should be subservient. And it was also modeled around classical republicanism, right? The ancient Greece and Rome, which were slave states where the majority of people were um, condemned to servitude or slavery and a minority had the liberty or the privilege of exercising democracy. That was the model in his part of the world and that you needed to bring civilization to to the frontier, that the frontier was not a a nice place at all or a democracy-loving place. So this ethnic version version that we're uh, the homeland of a particular uh, ethnic group was the rival vision that confronted Bancroft's vision very early on. And indeed, these two visions provided the ammunition on each side that drove us towards the Civil War. And what was interesting about Sims is that he took the the ethnovision and and wrapped it in a kind of nationalism to make it, I would argue, a little more palatable and got a pretty broad appeal for it. Talk about that. Yeah, he got a very broad appeal because he was um, he was. Uh, in addition to his uh, ethnocentrism and white supremacy, he also 
understood events on the ground a lot better than Bancroft. Um, Sims had grown up without a you know a lot of advantages and had later married well and you know, become a famous writer and then married well and become a member of the of the slave lord planting class that he'd always um, looked up to. But as a youth, he'd he'd gone to find his estranged father and travel with his estranged father on the um, what was then the southern frontier in the Alabama and Mississippi territories um, in areas that were still um, in the midst of, um, of wars between the Native Americans and the colonists who were moving in. His father, who had served in the War of 1812 under Andrew Jackson and participated in many of his, of his uh, conquests and excesses. And he saw this frontier literally traveling for months on horseback through, you know, um, you know, dirt paths and and uh, among settlers living in sort of um, wild squalor, what he considered to be people go leaving civilization and becoming more savage. But he understood them and their idiom. He lived among them. He could mimic in his novels and his writing. And he, he wrote about these people, ordinary people, crude people, slaves, um, major figures who were Native Americans, who, he, who made fully rounded figures. He was writing about people from, from classes and backgrounds who normally didn't, weren't the subjects of novels. And, you know, it was sometimes controversial that he was writing for polite society about impolite people. And that, but that made his, his telling of his story much more compelling and, if you, if you will, democratic, and that more people could recognize and see um, the story he was telling in his novels than compared to the very, um, you know, puffed up and um, formal language of Bancroft's histories. So he was someone who knew how to package a story and tell it well, and also had a, an understanding more broadly of people than Bancroft did personally, which, which worked to Sims's advantage as a disseminator of ideas, especially in a time when ideas were disseminated, you know, in, in book form or in speech form. And the genius of Frederick Douglass, who, who you to also talk about in the book, is that he seemed to understand the nationalistic appeal of this. He really understood why Sims' view was so successful, but he tried to shift it from that kind of ethnic nationalism to a more civic nationalism. Talk about that, that effort. I mean, Frederick Douglass is in a way the pivotal figure in the whole story because, you know, he's a you know, escaped slave. He escaped slavery in Maryland and in disguise had a harrowing escape in a in one of the brand new um, railroads that had just been established and got away to New York and was a day laborer in Massachusetts and was discovered his that he had this incredible story and an oratorical gift and later a gift as a writer who was discovered by the abolitionists who made him a star. And he then became a national and an international celebrity uh, through his writing. And what he said was, he, he did two things. He understood the, the evil side of the ethno-national vision and of what uh, William Gilmore Sims South was about because he'd lived it as a slave. And he could talk about it in first person in a way that many Northerners had never heard before. And he understood, unlike Bancroft, Bancroft believed that God had decided that the United States had this special place in the world. Therefore, this, the United States was always virtuous and innocent. And if there are any hiccups along the way, it's part of God's plan. So just sit back and be patient. Um, Douglas realized that America was not um, was betraying and not achieving the ideals set forth in the Declaration of Independence, that there was a gap there and was um, exhorting 
white Americans to come together and actually achieve um, those ideals, those unmet ideals, and was constantly put, you know, highlighting the hypocrisy and the failures and the shortcomings, but the whole time in trying to prod the United States towards what he believed was its, you know, great promise. And so it was, it was he who took the mantle, the, the construction that Bancroft had put together and actually carried it for, forward, you know, in truth rather than in denial and, you know, used his influence to, you know, he, he ended up at the white house during the civil war a couple of times in audiences with Abraham Lincoln to push Lincoln towards articulating that vision, which the president finally did at the, at the Gettysburg address where he basically said this civil war is about exactly that, about achieving our, our unachieved ideals. Um, and that that's what the sacrifice is about. So Douglas is incredibly important in some of his speeches, you know, articulate the, the, the civic national vision of what the United States should be as well as anybody ever has. And where does Frederick Jackson Turner enter into this? Because, I mean, it, it, he brings in the whole Western ethos. We talked a little bit about Western expansion before. It was a whole new element added to the mix. He was because he was, you know, the conversation had been dominated by people from the East Coast and especially people like Bancroft from, you know, Harvard and Yale. But Frederick Jackson Turner was from the West. He was from Western Wisconsin and was a, had gone to University of Wisconsin at Madison and became a professor there. Um, and he was uh, he had a totally different view. His view was that the West, the Midwest and the, and the interior West were not um, some periphery part of the American story, but in fact, were what made Americans Americans, that Americans became Americans when they crossed over the Appalachian Mountains headed West and encountered what he believed had been almost an Edenic world, right, where they were separated from history. They were far from the East Coast and, and the European legacy there and were able to sort of live as new, new people in innocence and that they therefore um, acted like good Republicans, that the landscape um, caused them to evolve and assimilate and become self-sufficient and practical and uh, believers in equality and the ability to do things themselves in self-government, and that that made Americans Americans. The problem was that shortly after he put forward this frontier thesis, which you know went viral, so to speak, it went absolutely everywhere and was talked about by everyone and shaped how people thought about the United States and its nationhood and got you know absorbed into films and movies and high school textbooks and and shaped Americans' view of the frontier. But Turner himself, almost immediately after he put out his essay, started realizing that he'd been wrong. He was a he was a tremendous researcher, but a great procrastinator when it came to writing things. And as he researched for the rest of his life for decades, he discovered that um, the different settlement streams, the one coming out of New England, the one coming out of the Appalachians, the one coming out of Pennsylvania, and so on, um, reacted to the frontier very differently. They weren't becoming more like each other when all immersed in the same frontier environment. In fact, they seem to retain characteristics from their, re their various cultures. He found this frustrating because he wanted it to be environmental determinism. He kept trying to find differences in soil types or something that to explain it, but he was sort of groping towards the, the argument I'd made in American Nations about the regional cultures being the, one of the most powerful forces determining our history. But that said, even though its author um, 
moved away from the thesis, the frontier thesis it had enormous influence in the way, uh, you know, 50 years of Americans thought about their country, and it still echoes, you know, resonates with us today. And that's one of the remarkable aspects of this, is the way that these various points of view about the country still resonate today, hundreds of years later. Absolutely. I mean, these, these things are still with us. You know, ideas have enormous um, traction and inertia and staying power, whether they're good ideas or bad ones. And we're, you know, still seeing the legacy of these rival ideas of what the United States should be, you know, informing and, and fueling, um, you know, debates and conflicts in our country today. One of the other characters that, that's a big part of your book is Wilson. Talk about how he played a role in this as it moved into more contemporary, as the country moved into more contemporary times. So my goal in deciding when to begin and end the book was to begin with, you know, when they were first trying to create a story of United States nationhood and that ended up being these rival stories of a civic or an ethno-national explanation. And I wanted to end the book when one of those had triumphed and gotten consensus, at least for a time period, over the entire country, broadly speaking. And that happened in the Woodrow Wilson administration in the 1910s and 1920s. And the shocking thing, perhaps, is that it was the white supremacist, ethno-nationalist vision that gained consensus first. And it, his presidency was the crowning moment. And essentially, he takes, as, a, as the first deep Southerner to be elected to the uh, White House uh, since the Civil War, he took the William Gilmore Sims's narrative and updated it to a, a post-slavery, post-Civil War experience. And he, was, he grew up um, in uh, Augusta, Georgia, and in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, during and after the war. And his father was a um, leading uh, preacher in the uh, Presbyterian Confederate Church, who created the seminal documents, uh, seminal arguments that slavery was in, ordained by God. And so, you know, he had a very hardcore white supremacist background, and it's encoded in the histories that he wrote as an academic, and, um, and then were exercised when he reached the White House, when he took the Union government that had won the Civil War and segregated it on racial grounds, when he took the first Hollywood blockbuster film, the one that made Hollywood Hollywood, The Birth of a Nation, uh, he, that film was um, celebrating and glorifying the Ku Klux Klan's reign of terror against African Americans after the collapse of Reconstruction to deny them political rights and force them from elected office. And that film actually had placards within, it's a silent film, right? It had placards inside it with quotes from Woodrow Wilson's history that backed up its main points. And the film was threatened by enormous protests that have echoes with today's protests outside movie theaters to prevent it from being shown. At that time period, the, the Supreme Court had not yet um, ruled that um, artistic uh, um, um, uh, products were protected by the First Amendment, so states and cities would regularly censor things that were considered to not be in the public interest to be seen, and there were demands the film be censored, which would have ruined the filmmakers who'd spent all this money. Well, uh, uh, Thomas Dixon Jr., the co-producer and the man who'd written the book the, the film was based on, was good friends with Wilson and had been a graduate school colleague of his. And Wilson reached out, and I mean, Wilson agreed to um, show the film in the White House to his cabinet, and and then the next day, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court showed the film to the Supreme Court justices and to leading members of Congress because Supreme Court justice had been in the Klan himself. So, I mean, this is um, this is the level of um, of um, 
fruition that the ethno-nationalist and white supremacist vision saw in the early decades of the 20th century. And that's where the, the union stops with that um, consensus moment. Clearly, that's not the consensus that remained as the 20th century moved on, but it shows just how um, powerful these ideas are that white supremacy has been, you know, has managed to be central to our federation-wide national story, not just a regional story, and long after the Civil War had concluded. We're completely out of time, but, but the next phase in all of this is the impact going into the 20th century, I suppose, that immigration had, but we'll have to save that for another time. Colin Woodard, his book is Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. Colin, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me again. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.